Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brand. I'm a certified functional medicine practitioner. Happy to be with you today. My Better Belly course is off to a great start. I'm going to continue promoting this thing because this is the last week that you'll be able to get the discount enrollment. What is Better Belly course? Well, I've had hundreds of clients and just random people that have emailed me over the past 10 years hey, I want to do what you do, or I want to learn to read labs, or I want to get better at reading labs, or I want to learn how to make protocols based on labs, and I don't know what to do. These are layperson, these are naturopaths, these are medical docs, these are chiropractors, these are people just getting into health, these are NTPs, these are other practitioners out there, these are moms who want to learn how to do this stuff, and so that's why I created the course, is because you all asked for it. I have a free one plus hour video of showing you some case studies and you'll learn how to use organic acids testing and genetic stool testing and urine mycotoxin screening to investigate and fix various health issues. So go check it out. Betterbellycourse.com is where you'll put your name and email in to opt in. You'll then get an email sent to you immediately so you can access that video and get to the enrollment page. And if you do want to enroll in the course, The enrollment discount opportunity ends next Monday, June 8th. The coupon to save $200 is Evan200 at checkout. And keep in mind, the cost of this course is less than two hours of my time, and you're going to get like 40-plus hours of me training you and teaching you all sorts of stuff that should probably be triple or quadruple the price. So please take advantage of this opportunity. It's not much, not often that I kind of pull the curtain back on the whole functional medicine clinic behind the scenes, but this is your access to that. So betterbellycourse.com is that. Now let's get into the podcast today with Dr. Andrew Campbell. He is a medical doc who's been treating and working in the mold illness world for a long time. He started out working with women that were sick from breast implants and we had a client of mine on the podcast. We've had several podcasts on this topic of explant surgery, removing them. Uh, but once he started using antifungals with these patients, he found that women started getting better. So then he was like, huh, this must be mold. So now he's helped over 10,000 patients with problems due to mold and mycotoxins. And he says everyone's immune system is unique and different, like a fingerprint. This is why there's no one treatment or one size fits all. And I would agree. And the key to diagnosis and treatment is to see if a person has antibodies to mycotoxins from exposure to molds. So we'll get into that because I like the urinary mycotoxin, but he's all about the antibodies. So I think both may be valuable, but ultimately it's the client. It's how do they feel? How are they sleeping? Have they reversed their conditions and all of that? But let's get into it without further ado. I am still available clinically. If you need help, please reach out. You can schedule a 15-minute free call with Megan Gump, my functional medicine practitioner on staff. She's amazing. I love her. You can book a free call with her at my site, evanbrand.com. And that's it. So let's get into it. Dr. Andrew Campbell is here to talk about mycotoxins. Hello, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So... A buddy of mine, Scott Forsgrind, our mutual friend, uh, did a great interview with you all about uh, breast implants and mycotoxins. And I've had many clients come to me who've had massively long list of symptoms. And on my intake form, I ask every new client, do you have breast implants? And 
the women with the longest symptom list say, yes, I have implants. And we did a podcast actually with a client of mine, a lady named Wendy, who got her, she went to an explant surgeon, got her implants out, and everything was magical and peachy keen for a little while. And then I did a follow-up with her, and she's like, well, I thought I was doing really good, and I'm still better off than where I first started when I had the implants removed. But now I'm having all this new stuff pop up. And I hadn't heard anybody talk about there being anything but, you know, roses and butterflies after you get it removed until I heard your interview and you were like, hey, the explant is really just the first step. So if you could just give us maybe some backstory on, you know, implants, what do you think is the uh, percentage of mold illness related to implants, things like that? Of course. So many years ago, I, I saw a group of women, all ages, young, old, middle-aged, tall, short, skinny, not skinny, etc. And they all had the same symptoms. And this was before computers. Um, sorry. And so we, I, I, the only commonality they had was they had silicone breast implants. So I couldn't figure it out because yeah, they were getting explanted, but they wouldn't get, they get marginally better, 20% better, you know, and that was a, an improvement, but then it, they still had 80% to go. So I found this guy in Montreal, Canada. I was educated in Switzerland, so my first language is, is French. And so I spoke to this, this French Canadian up in Montreal, PhD, who told me they're full of mold. So I said, and he, he's an expert on ex, uh, all medical implantable devices, so knees, hips, implants of all kinds, etc. He examines them when they're removed. And he told me that. So I gave these women, treated them, for um, as if they had mold. And sure enough, the clouds went away and the sun shone through, etc. Um, what were you doing back then when you say you treated them for mold? What, what did that look like back then and have you evolved what you do today? Um, back then I started off by prescribing an antifungal known as itraconazole because there's antifungals are just like antibiotics. They're narrow spectrum or broad spectrum. Itraconazole is a broad spectrum, kills all kinds of molds. Well, molds carry on them a secondary kind of piggyback mycotoxin on them. One mold produces a whole bunch of mycotoxins, and many molds produce the same mycotoxins. So I figured, okay, they're getting better, and then published several, several studies on, on these um, issues of implants etc. And low and, uh, and so I treated them with that. They also had mental issues or brain issues, brain fog, unusual headaches, visual uh, disturbance. Uh, some of them had auditory or taste or smell disturbance, etc. It's their balance was sometimes off coordination, so on and so forth. So I started treating them with high dose B complex, the whole B, all B. The other thing I gave them was phosphatidylserine, which is brain food. It's the number one substance the brain has most of. And I also gave them vitamin D3. Why D3? People think that D3 is for bones and things like that. It's a neuroprotector. It's very good. It actually, it really helps. Uh, it's, several studies came out just this April last month showing how it helps defend against 
the COVID virus. I've seen that. Yeah, that was really cool. And that the the people that were dying, the only people that were either dying or in really bad shape were people that had vitamin D level less than 30. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I gave them vitamin D3 and then melatonin. Although people take melatonin for sleep, it's all also a neuroprotector. And remember, from L-tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid, you get serotonin in the gut if you've got a good normal gut flora. And then from serotonin, you make melatonin. So people who have good gut flora don't get depressed. They've got good serotonin and they sleep well. People who don't have good gut flora don't are depressed or they're moody or et cetera, or they have anxiety and they don't sleep well. So I gave them the, the, the melatonin and that helped them tremendously. To this, I added really uh, a, quite a bit of fish oil. Um, I use uh, Dr. Steve Sinatra's fish oil because he gets it from an incredible source. He's very precise and he doesn't want any mercury or anything uh, in there. Um, and uh, How high uh, were you dosing the fossil tidal serine and what about vitamin D and what about fish oil? Um, fish oil is a great anti-inflammatory. So... Um, I would give them, um, you know, uh, fish oil in the morning and fish oil in the evening um, at at, do at what I would what could be considered mega doses. And the, the phosphatidylserine, uh, there's a lab. Um, it's known as Claire Labs with a K. They make great phosphatidylserine. I tell them to take two every day. <clears throat> I don't care if it's together or not together. Vitamin D3, 5,000 international units, one daily. Melatonin, 3 milligrams. You don't need less and you don't need more. Um, and then um, I made, I also made sure they had a good um, bacillus-forming probiotic. Um, you can get that either from microbiome uh, labs or you can get it from uh, biobotanical research. Because these are spore-forming bacilli, and that really helps. Because studies at Reading University in London showed that 90% of lactobacilli and bifidobacterium are, are killed in the stomach by gastric acids. So you don't really get the benefit that you do with, with these spore-forming bacilli probiotics. So with that, within three to six months, they got better. Then I got a bunch of people who said, you fixed my mom, my sister, my, my neighbor, my aunt, my grandmother, et cetera. I have mold in the house. Can you help me with that? Because we're all sick. And I gave them the same treatment, and it worked great. Well, let me ask you this. The one thing I'm not hearing of your protocol is any binders. So were you finding <coughs> that, I mean, did you just get lucky with these patients that the antifungal was enough? Or now, today, compared to back then, are you using binders, clay, charcoal, zeolite, chlorella, uh, well call cholestyramine. I tried zeolite for quite a while and um, it didn't seem to do the same as well um, as did um, activated charcoal. And the only the only thing you've got to be careful with activated charcoal is make sure that you haven't taken any other um, supplement or medication or whatever two hours before or after because it'll it'll bind it up and, and you'll get rid of it. But right. otherwise, those things really help. And then after six months, I would repeat their antibody tests to, to mycotoxins, and sure enough, they would be way down. 
Okay, yeah, we were kind of talking about that before we hit record. So I've run a lot of the urinary mycotoxins, and we'll kind of track it that way. But you're saying the antibodies are good because once the mycotoxins are gone, in theory, you're saying you wouldn't see antibodies or you would at least see a reduction of antibodies once the mycotoxins are gone. Is that right? Correct. Urine, urine is an excretion, and the urine test doesn't measure the mycotoxins. It measures the metabolites of mycotoxins. The antibody test is specifically for the mycotoxin. Also, ocrotoxin is 99.8% bound to albumin in the body. That's the number one protein of the body. It cannot be excreted through the kidney. It is reabsorbed throughout the nephron by both passive and active transport. It cannot be excreted, but they all, all the urine tests report ocrotoxin. Well, that's... Ah, so, so you're saying you get kind of a false sense of security if you look at that and you see the levels go down, because what you're seeing is just a tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and, and again, I'm, as I told you previously, I'm, I'm, evident, I'm an evidence-based doctor, so I base everything on evidence. Uh, on, on the issues of, of urine testing, there's been minimal amounts of studies, five. That's not enough to really carry it. On antibodies to mycotoxins, there have been thousands published. So the evidence, also, the, the antibodies through using the ELISA method for testing is 98% accurate for sensitivity and specificity. So it's a very accurate test. And that really tells you, here's the, the other part. You, you only need to do the test at six months intervals. You don't need to do it every month or, or spend that much money. Better spend it, you know, with, with doing the antibody test, because that's once every three months is 380 bucks, which is relatively inexpensive. Yeah, and I read on your website, I think you said you were sending off your samples or processing the labs through Mexico. Was that a lab that you have a relationship with? Um, it's it's, a, it's a, the best way we could do it to save money. In other words... If you do an antibody test anywhere in any lab in the United States, it's pretty expensive. So the best way to do it was to have it in an approved lab, certified, uh, et cetera, having all the necessary documents in order that does only that test. They don't test for anything else. They only test for antibodies to mycotoxins, 12 different mycotoxins. So um, it's a great lab. It's clean. You can eat off, you can eat spaghetti off the floor. It's so clean, um, and it's it it's been validated, which is the most important thing. Cool. Now uh, I'm gonna look and see at some of my online labs, like what kind of what kind of prices we're talking, just for curiosity's sake. Now, is it possible that somebody could have a mold problem and they don't show up with antibodies if their immune system just somehow didn't recognize it or didn't create a response to the mold? No, and there's a lot of mis lack of good information in people about immunology. And I do a lot of immunology as an immunologist, obviously. You have to have antibodies. You can't exist without an immune system creating antibodies. If you stop making antibodies... If you stop making immunoglobulin, you die. It's as simple as that, because you have no defense against the world. 
So even if your immune system is suppressed, you're still able to produce antibodies. Otherwise, you, you'd get sick from everything. It's a kind of an AIDS-type issue. You wouldn't be able to make anything, and, and you'd die quickly because you can't defend yourself again. I mean, we're, we breathe. We're around stuff all the time, you know, you know chemicals, viruses, bacteria, you know, people bite their nail. Uh, they put a pencil into their mouth as they're thinking, you know, they're also, you know, you, uh, you touch your face. My gosh, you get bacteria all over and you wouldn't survive. There's bacteria on food sometimes, you know? Yep. Yeah, I see. Okay. I'm looking at what you're testing for. So I found one lab that's uh, 79 bucks in the U S it doesn't cover, it doesn't look like as much. It's got alternaria, it's got aspergillus, candida, cladosporium, and mucor. So it doesn't look like it's looking at uh, some of these others on here, like the Verucarin and the Stachybotrys and some of those. These are only mycotoxins. What you're talking about are, are molds. Okay. And say, say that you went to uh, camping or went to a summer camp in the summer somewhere a long time ago and it was moldy or you stayed at a hotel with one of these window units in uh, some uh, little town and it was moldy you're going to make antibodies to molds because molds are living these are toxins so once you make an antibody to a toxin it stays with you until you get rid of the toxin but you can have picked up molds anytime in your life and you're going to have mold antibodies but mycotoxins being toxins, they're not living. They don't have a cell wall. They don't have a nucleus, et cetera, et cetera. They're not living, breathing cells. You make these antibodies, and they're very precise. I can do, I, I can, I'll tell you right now, I've been around molds because you can't help it. If you ever go shopping for, I don't know, antiques, you're going to get molds. You go to an old bookstore, you're going to get moldy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, there's 25% of all crops have contained some molds and some mycotoxins, so it's all around us. But mycotoxins, once you build antibodies, it means your immune system is fighting them. And that's the difference. Ah, I see. Yeah, I did found a different website where you're looking at like an anti-ochrotoxin antibody, and yeah, you're looking like 400 bucks. So... What you're saying is true about the price, that to run a panel like this, so I need to run it then and see what's going on because I am feeling better. I have been running the urine, and I have been seeing progress in the numbers and progress in symptoms, but I would still like to see what I look like on the antibodies because I guarantee I'm still producing them. Yes. The, the, the most important question you can ask a person is, how do you feel? If they say, I feel fine. There, then you can then you know that they don't have mycotoxins anymore. It's only when they're having mycotoxins and they're in and out, in and out, in and out of feeling okay, feeling good some days, and then not feeling so good other days, etc. And they're they're this on the seesaw. That's when you know you still got mycotoxins. How do you explain that? What's up with the seesaw? And do you think there's any correlation with atmospheric pressure? Because you know, Dr. Brewer did that paper on chronic fatigue and found like 96% of his patients with chronic fatigue have mycotoxins. And I've heard some people that say 
that when the weather changes, specifically like when a storm comes in and the pressure drops, that they feel worse. And I'm wondering if the the atmosphere is maybe pushing against the body and pushing more mold around, or, or, or what's happening with this seesaw effect? Well, part of, part of the seesaw effect is your immune system is trying to fight constantly. I mean, it's 24-7 for, for for, since you were born uh, till the day you, you, you no longer make it and you're out the door feet first. So during that time, your immune system is constantly battling everything, okay? And during that time, the seesaw effect is when things change in your environment. For instance, regarding the, the atmospheric pressure, it's the same thing as if you were put into a hyperbaric chamber. So if you go in a hyperbaric chamber, which is pushing oxygen into your tissues, you're gonna feel better. And it's gonna last a few days. But then the mycotoxins still are there. And so then you, you, you fall back down again. And don't forget, mycotoxins are, are, are stored in fat cells. So some people get on a diet, lose weight, and feel terrible. Well, why? Because the fat cells are getting, you know, are dissolving, and they're releasing these mycotoxins into the blood, into the whole system. And where do mycotoxins love to live? the brain and nervous system. So that's their favorite. That's their hot fudge sundae with a cherry on top. And that's because your brain is mostly fat, right? Correct. That's so why you, how do you it, get the mycotoxins out of your brain? Well, you kill, you kill the source of the mycotoxins and you, you make the immune system so strong that it goes and attacks the mycotoxins and excretes them through sweat. This is why people feel better with sauna, because it gets rid of some of them through sweat. It gets rid of them through excretions, such as the stools, especially. And when your immune system is strengthened, it starts really fighting against toxins more than anything. And this test tests you for IgG and IgE antibodies. What does that mean? IgG means you've got a chronic toxic reaction. IgE is more slated towards inflammation and, and, and you've got mast cells which are releasing histamine, causing inflammation, mastocytosis, etc. So you get the whole picture and decide, wow, okay, I'm, here's where I am. I know what I've got to do. And it's, and it's very well described. I wrote a monograph. Um, with 100, over 120 references to help people understand what are these mycotoxins, where they come from. Say you have a tiny uh, amount, about the size of a golf ball, a ping pong ball, of mycotoxins somewhere in some duct in where you work or where you live. That, that ball of, of, of uh, molds is producing, is, is releasing spores and mycotoxins 24 hours a day constantly you're breathing them in they're going in through your lungs up and through your nose and of course right in the middle here we have a cribiform plate gets absorbed into your olfactory nerves and gets into your brain into the pituitary hypothalamus axis and then destroys the blood-brain barrier just like it destroys the gut barrier and you have leaky gut with all the subsequent inflammation from that. 
So is it possible to get exposed to mold but not have mold colonization? You hear a lot about, you know, like on organic acids testing, you can see some markers where you'll see some aspergillus that looks like potentially is growing, maybe in the sinuses or the gut. And then sometimes you don't see that, but then you'll see really high mycotoxins. So I've kind of understood this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've kind of understood this based on listening to many people that you could be a victim of mold, like you went in a moldy hotel, you breathed in a bunch of mycotoxin, but maybe it didn't colonize. So you're just a mold reservoir, not necessarily a mold factory versus other people for I don't know what reason. They are both. They're growing mold, it appears, in their body, producing their own internal mycotoxins, and they're not just a victim of what they've been exposed to, but now they're their own problem. Does that question make sense? Right. So hair is 100 microns thick. Spores are 10 microns thick. That means they go to the deepest part of the lung, deepest part of your sinuses, and get absorbed. Mycotoxins are 0.1 microns. They get absorbed right through the skin. So say you've been exposed in a moldy environment, either in a, in a, in a, in a water-damaged home or a water-damaged office or workplace. While you're breathing in those spores, okay, aspergillus, penicillium, uh, fusarium, etc., all those spores, all those spores are carrying mycotoxins. Okay, so you kill the spores, you still got the mycotoxins. So, can can those two situations be true? Can it be two se two separate scenarios? Meaning, someone is growing mold in their gut and they're making mycotoxins internally versus they just had a one-time hit and they're not actively making any more. Like, let's just picture a bucket. Let's say this person went to a moldy hotel for a weekend. They got their bucket half full of mycotoxins and they feel bad from it. This person over here, maybe they were in a moldy house for years. Their bucket's overflowing and they're making more internal mycotoxins. Can those be two different manifestations of this? So that's a very good question. And let me take, let's take that scenario. If somebody went and spent uh, a weekend or a few or a long weekend in, in, in a small hotel on a beach somewhere and it was moldy. Okay, if they're in great shape, um, their immune system might be able to fend this off. Um, but I will tell you this, I've been sent um, pilots, Air Force captains who fly these billion dollar jets who stayed in a motel uh, because they had a few days off and they stayed with their loved one, spouse, girlfriend, whatever, in this motel, and they can't fly. And they're, they get confused, et cetera, et cetera. And they get sent to me to be diagnosed. And I have to treat them. And then when I finish treating them, I have to fill out a 20-page report about every little detail because <clears throat> they're not going to let anybody fly it a $20 billion jet just off the bat. They've got to make sure that person is just as sharp as they were before. So even those guys that are usually in really good shape, you know, physically, and they don't have any other diseases. Now, take that same situation and put in there a middle-aged person, okay, who's um, not always careful with their diet, who occasionally eats fast food, who um, isn't in best of shape, doesn't exercise regularly, um, doesn't necessarily eat organic food or anything like that. Just the average person in the United States. 
they're not going to be able to fend this off. They're not going to be able to fight this mycotoxin and these mold because they're very highly inflammatory. And it, it and and that inflammatory cascade just keeps going and going and going, ending up with leaky inflammation causing leaky gut, inflammation causing leaky brain. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would argue uh, and, and you've been doing this for a while, so my argument, which I'm just looking for your agreement or disagreement, the world's becoming more toxic. People are more depleted of minerals and nutrients. The soil's crap. The food's crap. Uh, people's sleep is crap. They're on their iPhone till midnight. So now I think people have more, uh, I guess you would just say, straws on the camel's back. So they can't really afford these mycotoxin hits anymore, where maybe 30 years ago, if you're working on this, People had less toxins in the bucket to deal with. Is that true? Correct. Because think of it. Um, th this has only been going on for a few generations. But your great-great-great-grandparents, on back to Adam and Eve, what would they eat? They would eat whatever was was in season at that time. They, they wouldn't eat strawberries in December. They ate fresh off the trees or whatever came out of the ground, or whatever was growing at that time, then, and then there wasn't any more because that crop was gone, and the next one would come up. So we did that for thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. Now we have nonstick pans. We have plastic bottles with BPA, and by the way, that's going to BPE, so they're saying, oh, it doesn't contain BPA, but they don't tell you it has BPE in it. Or BPS, which is bad news, too. Exactly. We're around stuff. All our food, I mean, some of our food travels thousands of miles before we get it. Tomatoes that you're going to eat that you're going to eat in a year are being grown today. So do you um, think that's increasing the mycotoxins? Are you saying like the organic blueberries that you get from Chile or Mexico? You're saying maybe extra transit time or you're just saying nutrient depletion as well? What I'm saying is that I agree with you. Today we're exposed to so much more, and part of the treatment is lessening environmental exposures. So if you live at a crossroad of two highways, boy, I tell you, or if you live on a golf course and they're using pesticides, or just the usual things that, you know, exhausts from cars and trucks, all these things are surrounding us. All the artificial carpets, all carpeting is made from artificial material. We're breathing that in. You know, cabinets, paint on walls, paint on things. Everything is 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 man-made today. So it's not something humanly made. So I mean, it wasn't. It's not something made from natural. It's made by us. And yes, we try to do organic, organic chicken, organic beef. Um, we try to buy line-caught fish instead of those that are farmed. I mean, farmed salmon, they feed them the, a chemical to make the, the flesh red because that's what real salmon flesh looks like. So they put a chemical in the whatever they eat. Yep. And then they take all the salmon out of those tanks, and the salmon have left their residue and all their poop in there. They put tilapia to clean it up. And then they sell you the tilapia. I know, it's ridiculous. Now, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 96, but I take hormone shots. Just kidding. Just kidding. I was going to say, you're, there, you ain't 96. <laughs> how old are you really? 
I'm 72. 72. So, so you've seen a lot in your lifetime. I mean, even just the past 30, 40 years in, you've seen massive changes with the food supply. I mean, I've told my grandparents that, you know, everything was grass fed. There didn't have to be a label for it. And it's, it's hard for them to understand and justify the price of it because they're saying, why? What's wrong with this beef? I'm like, well, this is not the beef you had when you grew up on grandma's 300 acre farm, you know, 80 years ago, it was, it was different. So, uh, let me go back to the question about the binders. So, cause, cause you're saying that you were seeing really, really good success with the antifungals, which I think is awesome. Is it just a matter of the antifungals or are the binders what you really need to pull out the, the mycotoxin? Cause based on some of the other mold experts I talk with, it's binders, 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 glutathione, sauna, and maybe antifungals if the people don't get better with the binders. So let me ask you, how, what are the binders going to do with the mycotoxins in your lung? Or in your brain, or in your muscle cells, etc. Nothing. I, I, yeah, I've got no clue. That's when you're we're talking about the brain, you know, because I've looked at some studies on the cerebellum getting affected due to mycotoxins. I'm like, well, how do you get mycotoxins out of the brain then? With with charcoal, it's not going to happen, is it? No, it's not. Well, how do you do it? And he, here's the other interesting thing: there are studies done uh, in autopsies of the brain of people who died who also had Alzheimer's. They autopsied the brain. 28% of them who had Alzheimer, 28% of those had mycotoxins in the brain. And I've talked to a number of doctors who've used the test, this, this antibody test, all over the United States who who've did antibody mycotoxin tests to autistic children and then treated them, and the children got better. So it goes to children, to Alzheimer. It takes the whole spectrum of human life. I've seen it too. I've seen it with kids. I had a kid in France who uh, was in special school and was biting other students, and he was going crazy. We did do urine mycotoxin testing. The levels were off the chart. We did give him binders. Now, I wasn't doing this antibody testing you're talking about, but we did sauna. Uh, we did do binders. We did some immune support, gut support, liver support, kidney support, all of it. And he got better in his ATEC score. They retested it, and he was no longer considered autistic. So I know you can reverse this stuff, but... Uh... So what is the first rule you've got to use in treating anybody with, with this? Is the first rule in toxicology is get the patient away from the toxin or the toxin away from the patient. If they're still living or working in a moldy environment, that's not going to help. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, yes, a lot of... A lot of people say use um, um, uh, binders, and I've explained that. But also, you've got to look at what about your your issue of the glutathione. You've got to give them NAC, N-acetylcysteine, 500 milligrams a day is enough, so they can use and and, and take full advantage of the glutathione. And I recommend glutathione either intranasally. Or, I can, or intravenously or, or by tablet, but that's my least favorite. I've been doing both. I've been doing an oral. I've got an acetyl oral mixed with NAC that I do a couple capsules of per day, and then I've been doing a nebulizer. So do you think I should be adding something else to it? No, no, that's good. Nebulized is, is great because okay. that's when it gets the lung because how, is, how are binders going to do anything besides the gut? Nothing. So do you think it can get in across the blood-brain barrier, too, if you're nebulizing it? Well, I think if you're really helping the liver, 
Because don't forget, the liver is the major, is the laboratory of the body. It detoxes you. And if it's been hit by mycotoxins, mycotoxins block an enzyme called P450. Yet that enzyme is the enzyme the liver uses to de detoxify you. And now your liver can't detoxify you because it's being blocked. The other thing that it blocks, and the other part about mycotoxins is they affect your hormones. And what happens in men is their testosterone goes down. They go see a urologist or some other doctor who gives them testosterone, uh, but it's not going to help because unless you treat the cause, you, 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 for, you, you know, you're always going to be taking testosterone. And in women, it's hyperestrogenic. So you've got a lot of estrogen. So these women have a lot of bleeding problems during their menstruation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it also affects your thyroid hormones. So, you know, in medicine, in, in, in treating people, there's three words that are great. Detect the problem, remove the problem, detect the cause, remove the cause, repair the damage. And then you're done. That person's going to be fine. It sounds simple, but if it's, it's a hell of a journey, I'll tell you. It's a hell, of a hell of a journey. And remember, also one thing here. You've got to try gluten-free for about 90 days. Yeah, because most it, most clients listening, they've probably been off of it for years. We're, I, I beat the drum on that one pretty hard. What's your what's your thought on it though? What why do you think it's important? Well, because all these 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 gluten foods, okay, wheat, they're inflammatory. They cause they're known to cause they're inflammatory. They're known to, known to cause inflammation. So you you don't want that. What you want to use instead is things like resveratrol that lowers inflammation, curcumin lowers inflammation, uh, tomatoes for their lycopene, natural tomatoes, and broccoli, because those are great at getting these, these an causing anti-inflammatory reactions to fight the inflammation that this wheat and all this has, has in you. So you kind of alluded to it earlier. So you're thinking that the immune system is probably going to work on the brain component. If you can just use, whether it's antifungals or something, to knock the mold down, you're saying binders probably aren't going to do it. But you think the mechanism would be that the immune system can handle the brain toxicity associated with this stuff? Or is there a different supplement no. beyond like fossil tidal serine that you should be using? All that that we talked about in the beginning of this conversation should be used because the brain is affected. It's very, it's almost, I've never heard of the brain not being affected mm -hmm. because it's where these things left to go. Remember, all these mycotoxins are, the thing they do is they suppress the immune system, okay? So then they can go wherever they want. So imagine a prison and all of a sudden you unlock all the doors. All the bad guys get out and do whatever they want. So that's not what, that's what mycotoxins do. They suppress the immune system so that all this, they can go anywhere, enter anything, and mess with you. We've, we've treated optic neuritis, people who've blurred vision. I've had people tell me they used to play guitar or violin or piano or something, and now they can't play it anymore. I have people telling me they have to read a paragraph two or three times to try and understand it. So I have others who, you know, have have these spells of, of dizziness or, or disorientation and things. 
Um, you know, all these are brain related. And of course, the common one is brain fog. But the number one symptom of molds and microtoxins is fatigue. So a lot of people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia, Lyme, actually have microtoxins or they have both. Like in Lyme, like the publication we talked about, it's in PubMed. Anybody can download it. If not, you can send me an email. I'll send it to you via email. It's called, is it Lyme or mycotoxins? And it can be either one or both. Yeah, that's a, really the pain when it's both. Yeah. I had a patient, had a moldy home, lived in Connecticut, had a moldy home. So he had these people come and remediated. And during that time, he had one of these campers out in his backyard. And that, that's where he lived, in the camper. It was, I'm sorry, not a camper. It was an RV. So he stayed in the RV. And he'd walk to the mailbox. It was summertime with his flip-flops. Okay. And then he came to see me and he was feeling terrible. He tested positive for molds and he tested positive for Lyme. Probably got bitten by a tick when he was walking from his, through the grass in his backyard all the way to the, the mailbox in front of his house. He got a tick bite. So, so what would you do? Um, I, I, the first thing I got to tr you treat is the, the worst. The worst thing is a toxin. And then you... And then you treat at the same time, in his case, because it was fresh, I treated the, uh, uh, treated the Lyme with antibiotics for three weeks and then kept treating the mold. And he's fine now. After about four or five months, he was, he was doing great. So it sounds like you caught it early enough. But if it was a chronic Lyme situation, how would you have approached that differently? Would you have still gone after the mold first because the immune system's weak? Yeah, because, well, Lyme also weakens the immune system. They both do. So you're fighting two bad guys with rings in their nose, rings in their lips, tattoos up and down their neck, and everything else. Both of them are naughty, bad, and mean people. Uh, well, not people, but things. You don't want either one. You got to treat the, the immune system. You got to bring up that reinforce the immune system. You treat this one with the antifungals and this one with the antibiotics. Now, while you're treating the antibiotics, you're really messing with gastrointestinal flora. Your microbiome is getting really messed up, and 80% of your immune system lives in your gut. So during that time, they're not going to feel that great for that first month. But after they, you've finished with the antibiotics, then you can start on the probiotics and deal with that part. So that's the benefit. That's how you kind of deal with when you've got this and chronic Lyme. I've seen a lot of patients come to me. I had, a, um, not too long ago, um, a, a young 22-year-old woman um, brought to me by her parents. Well, she went to a camp when she was 17, was bit by, saw it, saw the tick, etc. Just treated for Lyme for three years. She could barely graduate high school. And then she got into college she had to drop out her first semester. She couldn't make it. They kept, you know, she had intravenous antibiotics for two years. Oh, God. So, so by the time that, and they finally came to me, and sure enough, treated, treated her for microtoxins. Now, she'd been ill for several years, and in four or five months, she's much better. 
And the parents started calling me Dr. House. Dr. House? Yeah. Why that? The TV show. Oh, see, I don't even know the TV show. I'm out of the loop on that one. All right, so it sounds like the way you're talking and the way others have talked, that mold is a bigger priority than the Lyme and the co-infections. I've heard some argue that if you can just get the mold out and get the immune system strong enough, in theory, it's possible the immune system gains the upper hand on the Lyme and co-infections. Is that true? No, no, because Lyme, you'll, you'll, your immune system is going to make antibodies against Lyme. Okay. And Lyme is a great spy. As soon as it sees the immune system cells coming at it, what it does is it changes. One day it's an old man. Next day it's a guy with long hair playing a guitar. Another day it's, it disguises a female, etc. It changes the protein surfaces, which is what the, what the immune system looks at. And, and where does it live? It lives in areas where there's not too much circulation. Like, for instance, in joints. That's the first place it goes to. So if I cut my hand here, anywhere here, it's going to bleed pretty, pretty well. But if you look at the back of your hand, and it goes in a joint here. You cut there, it's not going to bleed very much. So it likes to go where there, and in the beginning, so it can start really to get out there and do its stuff by suppressing the immune system. Then it gets to Lyme carditis, heart, uh, neuroborreliosis, which is the brain the, neuro, um, the uh, Lyme arthritis, etc. So what, what, what um, treating the mycotoxins and Lyme in chronic Lyme, it shortens that chronic Lyme down to, to very little because most patients with chronic Lyme have already been treated. Yeah. I've seen that many times where they've done $10,000 of treatment and they're not much better. Yeah. Uh, do you use herbs at all for the chronic Lyme, or what are you doing? I've I've done a lot with, like, Stephen Buhner. He's a great herbalist who's written some good books. I've used a lot with, like, Japanese knotweed and Ceta and Alcornia and Cryptolepis, these kind of anti-malarial herbs for Babesia, and I've had a lot of good success. Do you know yes. about those? Do you use those? Yeah, I think that's great. The, 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 the negative part that I see about Lyme is that there's a few doctors that are Lyme well-known Lyme doctors. And to them, they're like a hammer. Everything to them looks like a nail. Yep. So to them, it doesn't matter what the person has, it's got to be Lyme. So they don't expand a little bit and say, could it be Lyme and something else? And I don't necessarily mean mold or mycotoxins. There's other diseases and things around. But no, it's Lyme. I agree. I, I've I've ranted about this countless times where it's good to have a specialist, but if they're two specialists, the thyroid guy says it's thyroid, Lyme guy says it's Lyme, mold guy says it's mold. So it's really important to be able to have a good broad spectrum knowledge of all this stuff. I agree 100% with you. Okay. So uh, with these people coming to you now, we've kind of touched on binders, but you mentioned, of course, they're not going to get mycotoxins out of the brain. And I know this is case by case, but paint us a picture of what that would look like. So what a treatment protocol could look like. It, it's going to be antifungals, it sounds like, but are you going to pick and choose binders? Are you going to find a complex where you've got a little bit of charcoal, a little bit of clay, a little chlorella? Do you do the prescription binders at all? What does it look like? No, I just use activated charcoal. What I do is, first of all, I want to make sure they're eating the right thing. I don't want them eating any inflammatory foods. So I put them on a nutritional plan. 
I don't call it a diet because people think diet is losing weight. Right. No, no. I'm looking at their nutrition. So that's one thing. So a lot of proteins, you know, um, carbohydrates is last. A lot, of, a lot of proteins and a lot of fats. And then a good probiotic, because remember, the immune system, 80% is in your gut. And then using the, the things we talked about, vitamin D3, uh, B-complex, glutathione, either systemically, intranasal, or nebulized, like you do, the, the N-acetylcysteine. I didn't mention this, but I need to. It's magnesium. You need at least 1,000 milligrams of magnesium a day. I use mag, M, magnesium SRT. It's a sustained release, and it's really good. And it makes a huge difference on their sleep, too. Um, coenzyme Q10, zinc, 20 to 30 milligrams of zinc. Zinc is the number one mineral of the immune system. Uh, melatonin, as we discussed, phosphatidylserine, um, activated charcoal. So That's you it. don't really go crazy with the binders, it sounds like. You feel that uh, charcoal is broad spectrum enough to cover your bases. Right, because don't forget, you're putting, um, you're, you're building the immune system through the gut. And that's where you're, you're adding, uh, you know, the activated charcoal. If I give them uh, cholestyramine and all these things, I'm binding other things up. For, for example, you can't give cholestyramine to anybody who's taking any hormones, thyroid, estrogen, progesterone, any oral diabetic medications. You can't give them that. If they're on a on, on blood pressure pill, there's a lot of those that you can't give them. So, you know, um, you're, you're binding up stuff that you shouldn't be binding if you use cholestyramine. So you say you're, it sounds like you're focused more on adding good stuff in than taking bad stuff out. Now, you're, you're saying not necessarily needing to go full strength. You know, some uh, people I've interviewed refer to cholestyramine as a very strong binder, whereas charcoal, they refer to it as a weaker binder. So you're okay with weaker binding as long as you're adding in more good stuff. Correct, because what are you going to do with the, with, with, uh, with the mycotoxins in the liver? The binder's not going to go there. So you'd what rather you just strengthen the immunity and allow the liver to do its own thing, you're saying? And and cholesterol is not nowhere going to it's not going to cross that blood brain barrier. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I've used cholesterol. I told you it cleared me up pretty quick, uh, but I did start to feel depleted on it too, though. Yeah, and I did the seesaw. I definitely did. So what about hyperbaric yeah. oxygen? You had uh, Joe Namath talk about uh, how he like reversed all his brain injury. He did like a hundred sessions of hyperbaric oxygen. Do you think that is just temporary because you said you're getting, you know, more oxygenation or do you think there's a mechanism that it's helping maybe push out more mold? I, what I've seen in, in people who did HBOT um, is that it works great, but it doesn't last. So um, I've, I've gotten to know Dr. Nathan Bryan of, of uh, Baylor and he uh, did all this work on nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a great vasodilator, and um, it's called Neo40. And and you dissolve it's a lozenge. You dissolve it on your tongue, morning and evening. And because it's a great vasodilator, it gets all the more oxygen and nutrients to everywhere in your body, including the brain. Neo40 is being taken by the U.S. Olympic team. 
Why? Because they need that extra push of oxygen when they're doing whatever they're they're doing. They need the, the all their muscles and tissues need more oxygen. So they're taking Neo 40, and I figured, well, this ought to work for the the brain. So I did brain spec scans before and after. Thirty days. It was a huge difference. So, so you're it, saying the extra oxygen in the brain, you're saying, is what was the huge difference? Yeah, but it brings also more oxygen to all your tissues. It doesn't pick only the brain. But, um, and, and that's a great, great uh, way to help get more good things into the brain. Yeah, I'm looking at the label now. So you've got some vitamin C, you've got B12, and then you've got beet powder, hawthorn berry, citrulline, and sodium nitrate or nitrite. So that sounds similar to what I'm doing. I'm just not taking that specific formula. I do the B's and the C's and then I just do like a tablespoon of beet powder and I'll mix it with some electrolytes. And then I've got like a blood pressure supplement that I use that's got Hawthorne and magnesium and a bunch of good stuff in it. And my hands will warm up 30 minutes after I take it. My hands are warm. I'm like, wow, it must be yeah. working. Yeah. Is and the mold is the mold messing up nitric oxide? Why is this such a big deal? Because I mean I hear cold hands, cold feet all the time with mold issues. Well, it just you're not getting good circulation. Okay. You're not by not getting good circulation, not getting oxygen and nutrients to everywhere they need to go. So you need need to take a and the best nitric oxide is Neo forty. There's several types of I mean several different people that make it. Mm -hmm. But the best one, the most precise one. And the one that there's an entire textbook, medical textbook actually written by Dr. Nathan Bryan and the head of cardiology at Harvard is on this particular formulation of Neo40. And they've done a number of studies to show it works. It's funny because you hear people paranoid about the uh, sodium nitrate or nitrite. And then you'll, maybe I'm saying, maybe they're different. I'm messing it up. Maybe nitrate is different than nitrite. But this is nitric. Nitric oxide, nitric oxide. This is not nitrous oxide, which dentists use to relax you. So, and it's not a nitrate, it's nitric oxide. I know Nit that, but when you look at the ingredients, it says sodium nitrite. But when you look at like bacon, they'll advertise bacon. No nitrates, no nitrites. So is that the same thing, the sodium nitrate? If you look well, at the label, it's the last ingredient. And everybody at the grocery store at Whole Foods, every advertisement now, it's no sodium nitrite. No. Um, again, if you look at the website for Neo 40, N-E-O, N as in never, yeah. E-O 40, okay, it's, it tells you, and it's, and it's, you know I mean, it's really, there's all kinds of ways you can, you can, there's been double-blind studies done with Neo 40. No, I believe you, and and I'm not too worried about it. I just think it's interesting that that's in there because that's an ingredient that you hear in the in the health in the health food world. You hear it, uh, you hear it poo-pooed a lot. People will see sodium nitrite and go, "Oh my God, why is that in there?" No, run from it. Run from it. I agree 100. percent You don't need that. You you just want to get. The nitric oxide. So here's what they say on their website. I'm looking at it now. They're saying the sodium nitrite. Recent studies shown that this is an important storage form and source of nitric oxide in the body and is highly efficient to, to support nitric oxide production. So that's their, that's cool. Well, let me, um, 
know, no, maybe it's not this, the same thing. I mean, it's the same name, but maybe it's different. Maybe what they have is different than what you're seeing in the bacon. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen that on the labels. Of course, I stay away from that stuff. Yeah, but then it's uh, in this. So is that the same thing, or is it different? You, you don't want it's nitric oxide. So it's not nitrate. It's nitric oxide. And I'm looking at the website as we look as we're talking. It's called human. It's the 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 actual product is under human, like human being, n with an extra n at the end. Human. Yeah. I'm on there. I'm looking at it right now. I mean, look, I'm not paranoid of it. I just think it's interesting that that's the same ingredient you'll see people claiming that's not. And if you go to get your regular store quality bacon, it's got sodium nitrite in there. So maybe people have been doing good the whole time. <laughs> this is nitric oxide. If you look at the label, yeah, it says nitric oxide. I know, I know. It says nitric oxide formula. But when you're looking at the actual label on the back and you're looking at the proprietary nitric oxide blend... Sodium nitrite is, is just, okay, but it's not a nitrate, so okay. it's, it's a completely different molecule. Okay, okay, good, good. Yeah, that's what I was trying to ask. Okay, good. Okay, cool. We've covered that. All right, beautiful. Okay, so the, uh, so the hyperbaric oxygen sounds like it's good, but probably not the miracle cure that many people talk about it first, as. Yeah, first of all, um, hyperbaric oxygen is not necessarily available to all people depending on where you live. Second, there might be a cost. It might be cost prohibitive for some people, which yeah. is why I want to keep the test cost down. Yeah. So it's easier to take something that can take it home, which is the nitric oxide. You just do that twice a day at, you know, at home. You don't need to drive somewhere and get that. And we know that it works. Yeah. That's great. Are there any other tools or hacks or things that you're doing for people to get them over the hump if you feel like the antifungals and all the baseline yeah. stuff we talked about wasn't good enough or are there any like oh i gotta pull this out of my hat now it's a very good question and i think i'm glad you asked it because one of the things that we saw um in our group was that these patients who can develop a certain disorder that's known as chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy long word shorten it to CIDP I wrote a book on it 20 years ago and uh, I didn't know about much about CIDP um, except that I knew that these people had nerve damage so um, I, I read up on EMGs and I found out that first of all they're very expensive and have to be done by a neurologist and the neurologist puts a needle at this end of one muscle and another needle at the other end of that muscle and measures the time it gets from A to B. Uh, and also that you need about 20% loss of myelin before an EMG equipment will pick it up. However, nerve conduction velocities, which are much cheaper and can be done by a technician, so that's why they're cheaper too, is uh, picks up demyelination at 5%. And what we saw is, and of course these come out in squiggly lines on a report, and I don't know how to read those things, so I found an MD, PhD at Duke University who would 
read them and interpret and give me a report. And I'd pay him for it. And he kept re sending me these reports and they, he said chronic demyelinating, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And so finally I said, can you put on there what you recommend giving them? He said, sure. So he started reporting them with this and he said the treatment is intravenous gamma globulin. Well, one day he actually came to the office because he says, I can't believe you're seeing so much pathology. I'd never seen so many people with this, this disorder. And the IVIG is given at 0.4 grams per kilo per dose over a six hour infusion once a week for six weeks. And that kind of treats that demyelination. Because what we did, we did a study um, uh, with a control group of patients who um, were working in a mall that was very moldy. And it was young people, older people, women, men, etc. And we published it. It's actually in a chapter in the medical textbook. And we saw how much demyelination they had. And the treatment for demyelination is only with IVIG. Well, there's three treatments. One is high dose of, of cortisone, corticosteroids, prednisone. Well, you don't want to give anyone that because their immune system is depressed to begin with. And why give them something that depresses even more? The other one, second treatment is plasmapheresis, where they take blood out of the vein, put it through a, a tube, go through a machine, and put it back into this vein. It cleans out everything. But it cleans out all the good and the bad. You don't have any more B vitamins. You don't have anything left in your blood. So it's great for people who have familiar hypercholesterolemia whose cholesterol is maybe 5,000, because you need to get rid of, all rid, rid of that cholesterol, but it leaves you like a limp, wet rag. Wow. The third one is the IV intravenous gamma globulin. Is this the same thing as the IVIG that you hear about kids getting treated uh, for PANDAS issues? Yes. Like this autoimmune brain issue? Exactly. Okay, and so you have to get something from like a healthy host, right? So I guess does the parent... Like, do they donate blood? They somehow pull something out of that and inject it back into the kid? Is that how it works? Or no, it's it, it, it's it's actually okay. It's, it's serum. So when you take draw blood, it comes out all red, and then when you centrifuge it down, it it's like dark red wine at the bottom and kind of like apple juice at the top. That apple juice is serum. It has no cells. All the cells are in the bottom. So they extract the gamma globulin from this top part and, and take out the gamma globulin, immunoglobulin G, gamma globulin, and keep adding it. They get this from blood donors and then accumulate it. And then it's pure gamma globulin in the little plastic bag or in the vial. Okay. And then they just IV drip it into you. Correct. Wow. Okay. So if somebody were looking for this, they would be looking up IV gamma globulin treatment, and then that's what they would be doing. Right. Wow. Okay. Uh, last question, then not, we got to run. Uh, you mentioned mast cell issues earlier. Do you do anything specific for that? We've had uh, Tanya Dempsey and a couple other doctors on here talk about mast cell issues where they're doing all kinds of stuff, mast cell stabilizers, H1 blocker this, H2 blocker that. And I just... I don't like that. 
And can you avoid having to do that? Can you just get the mold under control and mast cells will stabilize on their own? Right. Because when you stop the immunoglobulin G reaction, you stop anything to do with mast cells. So by doing what we've talked about, that stops that reaction, that toxic immune reaction on, on the mast cells. Do you have and, to go to that level of the IV stuff or just doing all okay. the other good things is good, sometimes good enough? I don't need the IV stuff for this. Uh, unless it's you want to give IV glutathione, but you can do just what we've talked about most for in the program, um, and you don't need to do any of it's. It's kind of you're treating, you're kind of treating the result instead of treating the cause. That's right. That's what I'm afraid of when I hear people talking about all these mast cell drugs. I understand that they may need to do that so they can tolerate the treatment, but I feel like they get distracted on just. Right. solving this crazy inflammatory reaction rather than getting to the root of it. Now, I've been doing a lot of quercetin because I've heard quercetin helps stabilize mast cells, and I feel pretty good with it. I think it does help. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And also, there's information for people if they want to read it on the website of My Myco Lab that they can go to uh, mymycolab.com, and they can go to that and get all, some of this information we've talked about. Also, if they email me, I'll be happy to give them, send them via email this monograph that goes through all of these details. Sounds great. Yeah, it's a great website. So my myco m y c o lab .com. Check it out and uh, you know share the love. Tell Dr. Campbell that this is where you found him. Was on my podcast. Um, this is a lot of good info, and I don't think this is ever going to be on mainstream news. You're going to hear all the Humiras and Enbrils and all that and antidepressants and, you know, Abilify, antipsychotic medications, number one best-selling drug in the world. Uh, I know mold causes a lot of neuropsychiatric issues, and they're not discussing that on TV. Oh, they're not. So, oh, they're well, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I really appreciate your uh, your time, and I appreciate your expertise. Thanks for sharing this stuff with us. Thank you. Have and maybe call me back after you're done. I want to tell you something about Louisville, Kentucky. All right. All right. So you're probably curious. What did he talk about? Uh, he just had some interesting history about Kentucky. You didn't miss out on much, but it was pretty, you know, pretty cool history. All right. So regarding the Better Belly course, we talked about that in the beginning. I told you I don't pull the curtain back on the functional medicine clinic stuff for various reasons, but really I'm just so busy. But you all kept asking me, and I kept getting emails every week, hey, I want to do what you do. What functional medicine course should I take? What training course should I take? What credentials should I get? You know, What school should I go to? Whose class should I enroll in? And, and the answer now is mine because I'm actually in the trenches. This is not theory. Uh, a lot of courses, and I've taken many functional medicine courses, and this is why I'm annoyed with most of them, which has forced me to create my own, is because they're not good enough, and you pay thousands of bucks, and you're left with some brain candy, but you have no clinical information at all. So if you're a layperson, you have no clinical action steps for yourself. And if you're a practitioner, you have no clinical steps to implement with your clients or patients. And so that's where I come in and make something that is, in my opinion, 100% clinically applicable. You're looking at organic acids tests. You're looking at stool tests. You're looking at mycotoxin tests. You're looking at chemical profile panels. I mean, just incredible stuff that you're not going to see anywhere 
And when I say anywhere, I mean literally. Nobody's doing this kind of case study-based course like this. So the price is cheap because I want a lot of people in it. And I want feedback so that I can make it better and better and better. And I'm giving you the discount too because why not? So Evan 200, Evan 200. You can use that till next Monday and then this thing expires. Uh, I keep saying Monday, June 8th. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Monday, June 8th. So that is the that is the discount when it ends. I think I was looking at the year 2022. I think I originally said June 6th, but no. The year 2020, June 8th is next Monday. So if you're listening past that date, and you still want the discount, maybe we'll give it to you, maybe not. But you should probably take advantage of it while it is still active. So it will expire June 8th, Monday, June 8th. Evan 200, you get 200 bucks off. How do you register for it? Well, you just go to my site. Just go betterbellycourse.com. And then once you're there, you just put in your name and your email. And then once you do that, you'll get straight to the sales page where you can see the video and you can enroll and that's it it's easy and you'll get instant access to the course it's at a drip content basis meaning you're going to get access to this module a few days later you get the next one the next one the next one there are quizzes along the way to make sure your brain is working and that you're paying attention and that you're learning so i've built some really really good quiz questions in there too which i think is going to elevate your knowledge quite a bit so betterbellycourse.com that is it i think you'll love it and if you need help clinically, I am still available. You can reach out at my site, evanbrand.com. And uh, that's it. So bird update, if you want one, do you care? Are you interested? I hope so. Bob White quails. They're here supposedly year-round, but I don't really hear them much until this time of the year. So we're talking at the 1st of June. And Bob White quails are making some noise right behind our house. So that's awesome. I've got about, I don't know, maybe two acres in my backyard that I've put in wildflowers. So it went really well last year, and it, we don't mow it. So I'm hoping that this unmowed section is going to attract the bobwhite, and maybe we'll have some babies in the field. I don't know. That would be pretty cool, but they're making noise. So that is the update in the bird world, and we saw and heard quite a few of the, what are called, was it called the yellow-breasted? I think it's called the yellow-breasted chat. I need to make sure. It was a really cool bird, though. I used this app on my phone that helps you to identify the sound because I couldn't I couldn't find them but but I heard the sound I didn't recognize it yeah that's what it was a yellow-breasted chat it's a very cool uh, it's a large songbird very very pretty I ended up finding him at the top of the tree but uh, that's what we've been up to in the bird world so let me know about your birding adventures what are you up to what are you finding send me a note on uh, my Facebook page look up Evan Brand or look me up on Instagram I'm there and hope to hear from you take care bye